The Gospel of Mark is an interesting one. Mark seems to pull no punches. He is a man of few words, it seems. And so, so much of the Gospel of Mark feels very concise, very concentrated in the way that Mark explains what's going on. He tends to forego a lot of detail that some of the other Gospels like to include. So an example of this is we see the way that Mark outlines something, a story that we're all familiar with, the wilderness temptation, right? Here's everything that Mark says about the wilderness temptation. And the spirit immediately drove him out to the wilderness. He was in the wilderness for 40 days, tempted by Satan. That's all Mark seems to want to say about that story, and that's okay. But it does mean that we can sit with these small portions of the text and actually pull so much from these moments. Uh, Today, we have this story of Simon Peter's mother-in-law. I heard someone say this week that the comfort that we have in the person of Jesus is knowing that Jesus experienced everything that we experience, all of the pain and suffering and temptation, as we just pointed to in the wilderness story. But this person says, Jesus never had a mother-in-law. That's supposed to be very funny. I love my mother-in-law. She's a gift to us. I'm sure she's watching right now, so I have to say these things. (laughs) Love you, Gail. But I want to focus in this morning on this verse 31 of our text this morning, that Jesus comes and he takes this woman by the hand and raises her up, and then her fever left her, and she began to serve them. It's hard for us to understand here in the 21st century exactly what it would be like to be sick in the ancient world. In the ancient world, sickness was stigmatized. It actually separated you from your community, from your position, from any kind of social standing you might have had. You would have immediately become dependent upon your family or just the goodwill of other people to even survive, to have things like food and shelter In the ancient world, the sick people, they stood out. And this was a serious issue because there were no real effective treatments. There were no cures for sickness in their day. They actually had a few options, one of them looking more like folk remedies, this idea of potions and concoctions that people would put together and give to those who are sick. And this was oftentimes very dangerous for people because you have no idea what's actually going on in these concoctions. The other thing you could do was to pay a physician. And this was something that was only available to a select few because it cost money and it was expensive. And the downside to all of that, aside from just being expensive, was the fact that oftentimes the treatment wasn't really all that more effective than the folk remedies, right? So many of these kinds of physicians would have worked on a kind of balancing of the fluids. And so they would have practiced things like bleeding and worked on getting all of your fluid levels exactly the same. And it was really dangerous. And so people who would see physicians were oftentimes left marked or scarred in their bodies. 
And they paid, again, a hefty price to make all of this possible. And then the other option that people had were some type of religious healing practices. All of these religions had something to say about healing and the process for being healed, but they often cost money and, again, were not all that effective. So sick people, again, they stood out. Again, they were visibly scarred or marked. Remember, lepers were required to actually announce their presence by a ringing of a bell or by shouting that a leper is coming. And so most of these people, most of those who become sick, became beggars or they were wholly dependent on their families or other people for their well-being and their survival. So being sick was an awful, awful thing. And it stripped you of your social standing. It stripped you of your place in your community. And it left you marked, left you scarred. Fevers, like we're seeing in this woman, were particularly bad because they didn't know what caused fevers. And they also knew they had no way of treating a fever. So one of the things that we see throughout the scriptures is that oftentimes fevers were seen as a kind of punishment or a kind of judgment. We see this in texts like Deuteronomy and Leviticus. And they didn't have language for what was happening. And so oftentimes they would refer to these fevers as the heavenly fire because they didn't know where it came from and they knew that no one could actually cure it. And so if someone's fever broke by way of their bodies being healed, well, they understood the only person who can quench the heavenly fire is God. The thing that's so striking about all of this is the way that sickness seemed to be positioned around judgment. Remember the story of the blind man and the disciples say to Jesus, who sinned? Was it this man or his parents? Because somehow sickness and illness and fever, anything that is unwell in us must be the result of some kind of sin or some kind of judgment. So then along comes Jesus. And Jesus seems to break all of the rules all the time, right? There's three rules that he breaks in this story alone. Just in a couple of sentences, we see that, for one, Jesus touches a woman that he's not related to, which is a big no-no in Jesus' time. And it's not just a woman that he's not related to, but Jesus touches a sick woman, which was another big no-no. The sick were not to be touched, And then the third thing that Jesus does is that he heals her, but he heals her on the Sabbath, doing that work of the Lord at a time when he's not supposed to be doing it. I want us to focus this morning on the way that this woman took steps toward her healing. I want us to focus on the fact that as a sick person, she wouldn't have been allowed to host people in her home, to step into that position of service, to extend hospitality to anyone. Remember, in this moment of her sickness, she has no social standing. So where is she? She's in her son-in-law's house, 
relying on them to be cared for, to be fed. This also means that this woman would have been cut off from the worshiping community. That those who are joining together in the temple for worship, she would not have been allowed to join. So she's cut off from her community. She's cut off from her social standing. And then Jesus touches her and her fever is cured. But then she jumps into service. This is what she does with her body that's been made whole. She jumps back into serving the other. From that place of health and from wholeness, this woman is not just restored in her body. That's part of the miracle here, but it's not the whole miracle. She's not just made whole. She's actually restored to the body, to the community, to those that God has called her to serve and to love. So imagine if she just would have settled with being cured of her fever. To have Jesus lay his hands on her, to lift her up, as the text tells us, and the fever leaves her and she just rolls over and goes back to sleep. Is that any kind of real cure for her? See, I think that we do things like this all the time. I think that we come to Jesus and we ask for a cure, something like our fevers to be healed. When what we really need is a deeper kind of healing. We don't just need our physical bodies to be touched. We need to start to see the world and one another rightly. Cures oftentimes are just counterfeit for the real healing that God imagines for us. Seeking cures is a whole lot easier than seeking to be healed. For this woman, the cure was that her fever left her. But the healing was that she's able to serve those to whom God has called her to serve. We see these kinds of counterfeit cures all over the place. For those of you who are familiar with the recovery community, for those of people who are battling addiction, whether it's alcoholism or gambling or drug addiction, whatever the case may be, one of the most tragic stories is when people leave one kind of addiction and simply trade it for another kind of addiction, claiming that they've been healed of that other thing without doing some of the hard, image-transforming kind of work that it takes to be healed of addiction. But we do this again all the time. We exchange one issue in our lives for another without doing this hard identity shifting kind of work that the gospel requires of us. I think we see, again, examples of this all over. We see this in things like cancel culture. Canceling someone is so much easier than actually seeking reconciliation. Canceling someone doesn't require us to actually hold someone accountable. And don't get me wrong, there are times when voices need, need to be quieted. But we also shouldn't confuse canceling someone with just the consequences of their actions. That's called accountability. That's not called cancel culture. Cancel culture is too easy. It doesn't seek any kind of restoration. It doesn't seek any kind of reconciliation with those people. 
We see this in other things like the counterfeit of this increasingly popular idea of conspiracy theories. Conspiracy theories make it easy for us to blame someone else for the mess of our lives, which is often just a mess of our own making. Conspiracy theories let our problems and the way that our lives have worked out, we can place the blame on just a select few, that all of this must be because of them. Or worse, it's actually a point of comfort for us to believe that there are just a couple of people who have all the power, who are pulling the strings, making my life to be just so, rather than accepting that this is the life that we've built. This is something of the moment that we find ourselves in. It's something of what's happening now in this moment, that we want a cure without the work of healing. We hear cries all the time for unity among the body or unity in our nation without any calls for accountability. We have to ask ourselves, what is it that distinguishes being cured from being healed? When we look at this text, we see that when we're ready to be healed, it actually demands action on our part. Again, this woman wasn't just healed and then she rolls over and goes back to sleep. It caused her to leap into action, faithful action in serving her community. In one sentence, Mark's gospel tells us the fever left her and she began to serve them. He doesn't even separate it into two sentences. It's one breath. She was healed and she began to serve. This word serve is the word diaconai. If that sounds familiar to you, it's because this is the same word that we use for deacon And this word, diaconi, it simply means to be of service, to meet a need, to serve another, to wait on another. This is the same word, again, that we use for for deacons. And deacons are not just the old guys who help us find a seat and then pass the offering buckets. Deacons in our communities, they actually serve a function in the community. Deacons are the ones who serve at the threshold of the church. Deacons are the ones that stand in this space between the church and the world, and they call the world into the church, and they send the church back out into the world. If you've ever been part of a liturgical service, there's always a deacon at the end who is standing at the threshold, standing out the door, announcing to the community of faith, let us go to love and serve the Lord calling the beloved community back out into the world, reminding them of the needs that are present outside of this space. This is what it is to be a deacon. So what Mark is doing here in this image, just these couple of sentences, is Mark is painting this microcosm of the church. It's a glimpse of the blessed community of the people of God. There's a raising up. 
It's the same language that we see in Jesus' resurrection in Mark 16. There's a gathering of the people, the ecclesia, that are gathered around this moment of healing. And there's a microcosm of this worship where a table is set, that serving is taking place, and the world, again, is at the doorstep. We heard this in verse 13, that the whole city was gathered around the door. So we're meant to look at just these couple of sentences and see what Mark is doing is painting a picture of the future. He's saying that this is what it looks like to be faithful witnesses of the gospel, to come and to worship, to bear witness to the raising, and then to send us back out into the world in service. Dr. Ophelia Ortega, she's a Presbyterian theologian. She says this, reflecting on this passage. I think we have this because it's kind of a long quote, but it's worth listening to. She says this, this woman gets up and turns the Sabbath into a paschal day of service to others. Jesus does not command her. She is the one that assumes the initiative and then awaits the consequences, discovering the value of mutual service above the sacredness of the Sabbath. Remember, she was breaking Sabbath law by serving them. She served them. Simon's mother-in-law interprets the gift that she has received. Her service cannot be understood as a woman's menial work under the domination of lazy males, but as a true messianic ministry, creator of Jesus' new family. For that reason, this woman is Jesus' first servant and joins him in the radical announcement in action of the kingdom of God his first deacon. She continues, Simon and the other disciples won't understand it until Easter. They will not want to become servants of each other. Remember, they argue over who will be the greatest among them in the kingdom. They did not perceive that the Son of God came to serve and give his life for all, but she, on the other hand, knows it. She has overcome all the selfishness and restrictive teachings and has been close to Jesus. Deep down, she is already Christian, diakonisa, a servant of the church gathered in her son-in-law's house. We move from being cured to being healed when we can shift to loving and serving one another. We remember the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and to love one another. This is how we move from being cured to being healed, that when I honor you, I honor God. When I serve you, I serve God. When I love you, I love God. When I love my children, I'm loving God. When I love Lissa, my wife, I'm loving God. When she loves me, she is loving God. My father, my friend, Father John Paul, says it like this, that we serve 
and love God by loving and serving each other. And then my dead friend, St. Anthony the Great, says it like this. Our life and our death is with our neighbor. If we gain our brother, we have gained God. But if we scandalize our brother, we have sinned against God. I think too often our perception of serving is simply an occasion for us to do good. Somebody on that Facebook post that I mentioned earlier uh, about tell me how you grew up in church without telling me you grew up in church, he said anytime he walks into a room, he assesses how quickly the chairs can be set up or torn down. (laughs) Because so many of us grew up in contexts where we had to do this kind of work. And so serving looked like just an occasion for us to do good. But instead, what Jesus directs us to is this kind of hidden, obscure, tucked away life of service. Remember in Philippians chapter 2, in speaking about Jesus, he says, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be exploited, to be used to his own advantage, Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Sanctuary, we live in a world of push notifications and follower counts and influencer culture. And all of it is an attempt to answer this question, who are you that I should take you seriously? A life of obscurity, this life of service, is the exact opposite. It stands in direct opposition to so many of the values of the day, that we are defined by how many followers we have, by how many likes we got on that post, by how many comments or how many times it was shared. A life of obscurity is the opposite. So in a time when everything we do is meant to be seen and shared and pushed out there, we've convinced ourselves that the more we are known, the more influence we can have for Christ. And so we need to make much of ourselves so that we can make much of Christ. But that's not how the gospel works. In reality, all this does is reveal our very tragic deficiency to trust God, to be God in spite of ourselves. This is what it is to accept a counterfeit cure in place of our whole selves being healed. If we can present ourselves in the right way, if we can look like a good person, if we can post the right things on social media, if we can be just woke enough, then our good deeds will be seen without us having to actually do the hard work of transformation. Henry Nouwen, who wrote a brilliant book called The Wounded Healer, says this, the great illusion of leadership is to think that people can be led out of the desert by someone who has never been there. 
all of us in some way have found ourselves in the desert, I think, these past 12 months. We're closing in, it's crazy, on a year since we've been able to gather and worship and celebrate with one another in the ways that we're used to. I'm so excited to see some of our friends today who have been vaccinated and are finding space to come back to us. But it's been a full year. A lot of us are experiencing this desert moments, this wilderness moment. Throughout Mark's gospel, this theme of the desert, of the wilderness, comes back to us time and time again. It continues to creep into this narrative. And we saw it in the text today, in verse 35, that says that in the morning, while it was still very dark, he got up and went out to a deserted place. And there he prayed. When Christ steps into the wilderness, Christ is able to step back into relationship with others in fullness and out of a wholeness because he steps back into service of the other, of doing the will of the Father. This is something of what Henry Nouwen means, that the only one who is ever able to faithfully lead us out of the wilderness, out of the desert, is Christ And that the path he leaves for us is a path of service to one another, which becomes for us a path toward healing. We are entering a season as a community that will depend on your service. I read to you a moment ago this letter from Father Brent and from Bishop Ed about our building, and we're in the middle of selling this space, and there's some unknown and there's some uncertainty about the future, but it's nothing that I'm not excited about. I'm so excited for Sanctuary's future and for where we're headed. But let me tell you, it's only going to work if we can rely on one another's service. If we see and believe that we so often settle for cures when what we need is a deep healing. And so we give of ourselves, trusting that God is the one who has given himself to us. And so we never serve out of an emptiness, but we can always serve from a place of wholeness and health, just like Simon Peter's mother-in-law. So who sanctuary becomes in the weeks and months ahead, I think will be marked by our willingness to serve and love God by way of serving and loving one another as a community of faith. This could be the beginning of a beautiful season for sanctuary, a journey out of the desert of this past year. But it will only be possible by our service to God and to one another. Amen.